0: And turn to the book of Exodus in the chapter 20. In the book of Exodus in the chapter 20, we'll read together from the first verse, read down through the chapter. visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, Thy nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they were moved and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt I say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, Neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth I shall make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, I shall not build it of hewn stone. For if I lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shall I go up by steps unto mine altar that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Amen. And so reads the word of the Lord. Tonight, we come to busy ourselves studying the Mosaic Covenant and employing the same framework that we have used in our previous two studies in both the Noahic and the Abrahamic Covenant. Last week, of course, we attempted to set the scene, to place in its proper context all that we come to consider tonight. Our study involved the reasons for God giving this covenant. And these I identified as being threefold. And in laying those reasons before you last week, I noted that it was given to conform their witness, to reform their ways, and to inform their worship. Now, as we come to consider all that is recorded for us here in this 20th chapter And following as we make our way down through this covenant to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we want to pause and just consider all that is recorded in the words that we have read together, and indeed in the words that is recorded for us in the previous chapter, the chapter 19. For as you come to chapter 19 and read in the verse 5, it tells us there, "'Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant,' Then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And here in this verse, we see that the Lord is laying out very clearly the reason, the very purpose that they now find themselves at Mount Sinai. This was, be to, this was to be the place where He would reveal His covenant to them. Notice the solemnity at the moment. As we note there in the verse 5, but also continue then chapter 19 and read in the verse 12. It says, Thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about. This is God's instruction to Moses as they are gathered at this mountain, as God Himself would descend in the cloud and as Moses then would ascend to spend that time in communion with God. Then God is noting some various serious conditions that must be implemented as this is all occurring. He says, I shall set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up the mount. And then carry on down the chapter and read in the verse seventeen, and it says, Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up. And so as we view this scene as it's depicted to us here in the writings of Moses, we see, of course, that holiness was all around. The awesome sight of a veiled God descended upon the mount. And here in this wilderness, here at this mount, here in this very moment, the voice of God was going to speak. The will of God was going to be revealed. As we behold that, I remind you of something that we've mentioned in previous occasions. And it's simply this. There is an awe and majesty, a reverence and a fear an atmosphere of holiness that we in this generation just don't get. I mean, we say we do. We try to pretend we do. But I tell you that as we view the lives of Old Testament saints of old, as you view the Old Testament Hebrew of old, as you survey their behavior, their attitude, their reverence, their holy awe, there is something so dreadfully wrong with how this generation treats the place where God is worshipped, treats the place where the Word of God is heard and received. There is something so dreadfully wrong with our view of God. tonight as we gather in this assembly. I tell you, we run the risk, the very same risk of knowing that reality here. We know the the risk of coming to this place of worship and going through form and tradition, but yet in all our efforts, in all our worship, we can miss meeting with God. We can miss hearing from God we can miss God. And think not just for one moment that our assembly is guaranteed the very presence of God every time we meet. Think not just because we make a concentrated effort here to stick by the stuff, to remain faithful in our doctrine, to remain steadfast in our beliefs, that we are somehow guarded or we are somehow sheltered from knowing the reality of an assembly void at the presence of God. I warn you tonight, as the faithful people of God who come time after time, who have that desire, that sincere desire to come to meet with God and to hear from God, I warn you that we are all but one step away from bearing the title Ichabod above us, from knowing the reality of the presence of God, not inside, here amongst us, but on the outside, knocking and seeking admittance. You may disbelieve me tonight, but I tell you that I've been in churches who believe what we believe who minister according to the pattern we minister. But tonight their assembly is void at the presence of God. It's a cold house for the Spirit of God. God forbid. God forbid that's ever the testimony of this assembly. Notice how God provides a remedy to all that would appropriately worship Him the pattern that we must employ time after time if we would reverently worship Him. He says in the verse 11, be ready. That reminds us that we as the people of God must be watchful. We must be on our guard every time that we come to the house of God that there is not found amongst us a pattern of worship or an attitude of worship that demeans God are that smacks of our reverence. We must be ready to worship God. We mentioned it on Sunday, but we must be those who prepare our hearts before we ever set out the door. And I know that life is busy, and for many, especially those with young families, the moments that are spent preparing kids to go out the door are frantic, and they're few. But I urge you, begin your preparation even the night before. And before you ever bed down to sleep, ask the Lord to prepare your heart for true worship of Him. And before any of us ever darken the door of this assembly, may it be true that we have sought the Lord and we have beseeched the Lord for the blessing that only He can give. May we be ready as we come to worship Him. But also in verse 12 it says, in the middle part of it, take heed to yourselves. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Simply one bad attitude is enough to ruin the entire assembly. One misapplied way of worshiping is is more than enough to corrupt the whole. We must be on our guard. We must search our own hearts. We must try our own ways and we must ensure that as we come there is nothing between us and the Savior. I know to live a life that is sanctified. I know to know His blessing every time we meet. Well, we come to the covenant. The first point in our framework has always been the substance of the covenant. The substance of the covenant. The first thing that we note about the Mosaic Covenant is simply this, it is legal in its tone. Remember, we defined a covenant at the beginning of our studies as a promise or agreement within a legal framework. And as we come to the Mosaic Covenant, we come to the covenant which is undoubtedly the most legal in tone of any of the Bible covenants. Contained within the Scriptures between here, Exodus chapter 20, and then ending in Deuteronomy in the chapter 8, or 28, sorry, God gives 613 commandments. 365 of these are what we refer to as negative commandments, thou shalt not. And the other 248 are what we refer to as positive commandments, things that must be done so immediately we identify a complete legal code given by God, which would be effective in guiding the leaders of the people, informing the worship of the people, and putting into place a moral code which would regulate the behavior of the people as they lived, as they worked, as they worshiped, and as ultimately they would one day fight together. Now, you might have heard that the Mosaic Covenant is what we refer to as the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Other people note the judgments governing the social life of Israel. And yet others highlight the ordinances governing the religious life of Israel. But what we must understand is there is a unity to all that God gives. It's a complete code every part hinges upon the other. Every part is as irrelevant to the other in its implementation and indeed to its ultimate fulfillment. Now, what is really found in these Scriptures is what we would call in our modern vernacular the very first national constitution The definition of a constitution is a system of fundamental principles according to which a nation or a state is governed. And that's exactly what God imparts to the nation of Israel as he comes and meets with Moses here and then in subsequent times throughout this period of Scripture. It's legal in nature, it's binding in nature, it's comprehensive in nature. It would would always be the go-to document to guide the leaders in their decisions, but also to inform the citizens of their rights and their obligations. It would, of course, provide the foundational resource for national pride and identity. When it comes to being patriotic, the Bible encourages such a motivation in the heart and in the life of the Hebrew. There was to be a national pride about that truth that they were the chosen people of God. There was to be that patriotic spirit that they were that set apart people and all that is found in the Mosaic Code encourages that in a positive way, not ever in a self-consuming way, not ever in a grandiosing way like our friends across the ocean would indulge in from time to time. And not not only are not only are not also in a self confident way that ever superseded their need for God. But it did encourage them to take heart in the fact that they were the people of God. Something we dwelt upon for a little time last week. Another key aspect of the Mosaic Covenant was blood sacrifice. Now, blood sacrifice is something we've already noted in previous Scriptures. We saw it in Eden. We saw it when Noah came forth from the ark. We saw it in the life of Abraham. But here in the Mosaic Covenant, the guidelines for blood sacrifice were formalized. Come across to Leviticus in the chapter 17. Leviticus in the chapter 17 and if anyone ever sees a frog around this church, it only ever seems to appear whenever I'm in this church, please get rid of it or extinguish it, and that would greatly help me in my delivery of the messages. It only ever appears. It's all right at home. I'm able to give off as normal, but I'll come here, and it always seems to be right there. So if you catch it, you're doing me a favor. That would be appropriate and helpful. Leviticus in the chapter 17, to verse 11 <clears throat> it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And so here we see, undoubtedly, God setting down the guidelines, the principles, and the reasons for blood sacrifice. Now, in the Hebrew, we understand that this whole commitment that is given here, especially in this verse, but also in other passages, to mean a covering for sin. It would not be, of course, until the blood of the dear Son of God was shed, that the removal of sin was to be known. But here in the formalizing of God's design and God's desires, when it comes to blood sacrifice we see very clearly the basis for the Israelite people to know forgiveness and to know restoration of fellowship. Now, the other key points of the covenant include further information relating to their diet, a provision for the death penalty, and direction concerning the administration of circumcision, which God guides in the giving of this Mosaic covenant should be enacted upon all who would be part of the commonwealth of Israel, and thereby it would be a sign of submission to the Mosaic Covenant to all who went under this procedure. Now, admittedly, as we've made our way through that, that's all a little academic in nature. But step back from the detail and see beyond any shadow of a doubt Comprehensive evidence that our God is a God of decency and order, and that's what's found in this code. That's what's found in this covenant. Proof that our God is a God of decency and order. We've seen it, of course, already in the Book of Genesis in His works of creation. We see it here in the law. But come also over to the book of Isaiah and we see further confirmation of God's desire for all things to be done decently and in order given to us in Old Testament times. Isaiah in chapter 44 and the verse 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who is I shall call and shall declare and set it in order for me? Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid, have I not told thee from that that time and have declared it. Ye are even my witnesses Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. And here we're reminded that He is a God of order. He is a God who has set things in order. He is a God who has revealed that order. And He is a God who will continually stick by that order. And this desire for decency, this desire for order to be the testimony of His people remains true to this very day. For Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in the chapter 14 in the verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. He's writing to a church. He's writing to an assembly. He's writing to the redeemed people who have known what it is to have received salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ. To Timothy he wrote, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's saying the church is to be the pillar, the ground of the truth, the place where the truth is shared, the place where the truth is declared, the place where the truth is unmovable. That's why it's a pillar. But as you attend that place, as you serve in that place, as you come time after time, there is a decency, there is an order to how the work of God should be done. that remains so important in our generation. But as we survey church life today, in our Western world, Is it not true we see chaos, disorder, calamity? We see people refusing to submit to or work with leadership. We see within leadership those who vie for position, those who love the preeminence, those who feel a sense of entitlement because of the office they hold. We see people who make kingdoms and territories out of areas of service that have been entrusted to their care. We see department leaders who think they are deacons or elders. We see deacons who think they are elders. We see elders who think they hold the role of the pastor. And ever increasingly, we see people being unwilling to serve. We see office bearers, both elders and deacons alike, with a short shelf life. And we see pastors burnt out. All because there is a lack of decency and order within the local assembly. Now remember, for the children of Israel, failure to implement these God-given directions would lead to disharmony would lead to disunity, would lead ultimately to disaster. And I tell you tonight that the same failure to adhere to God's guidelines for church today will lead to all three causes as well, or all three results as well. And that will be the same for any fellowship, including once more our fellowship. If a conscious decision if a conscious effort is not made to do things continually by decency and order. I could take you to homes tonight where men and women were once leading lights in their local assembly. They served the Lord. They were faithful to every meeting. They supported every cause. But tonight you couldn't drag them to church with all the horses in Ireland because one day they were burnt almost fatally damaged by what went on in the local church. I could take you to the home of five pastors or ministers tonight who in the last two years have left the ministry, went back to secular employment. And the reason they give, their churches were just impossible to pastor. I tell you, our God is a God of order. And our God desires that His people be those who implement and maintain proper order in the church, all for our good, but all to the praise and to the glory of His name. The substance of the covenant, but notice also the stipulations of the covenant. This covenant was a conditional covenant. It was a covenant in which the promises of God depended upon the actions and the obedience of man. Now, we see that very clearly laid out for us in Exodus in the chapter 19 and that verse 5 that we've already read together. He said, Now, therefore, if, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar pe- treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine and here we see testimony to promised blessing of god that blessing being of course that they would be a peculiar treasure a peculiar people unto him above all the people of the earth and this give assurance it also give access to special blessings Special provisions, special protection, but it was all conditional upon man obeying all that God would go on to reveal to Moses. A key point to our understanding of this obedience, our key point to understanding that this obedience provided access to specific blessings is central to our understanding of the conditional nature of this covenant. Because God was not, and God is not, a cruel God. The daily manifestations of His grace and His faithfulness would always be existent, just as daily evidences of the grace of God would be and have always been evident in unbelieving nations and in the lives of unbelievers also So too, even amongst a rebellious nation, God would still be merciful. God would still pour upon them His daily provisions, His daily mercies. But the the requirement for obedience and indeed those uh, things that were promised them for disobedience, the cursings of the covenant, the divine judgments that would come upon them are essential to this covenant. Why? Because it either opened the door of access to that special provision of blessing or closed the door of access to the knowledge of those special blessings. And that was a central understanding to all that's required in the Mosaic Covenant. This was never a covenant given to be redeemed. This was given to our redeemed people. God had already brought them out of Egypt. He'd already established that He would bring them into a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He'd already promised that He would be with them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He'd already established that provision of manna day by day for their nourishment and for their satisfaction. And so, this was never given in order that they might know the divine favor of God in a redemptive way, but it was given so that they might know the divine favor of God in a special way, setting them apart as a peculiar treasure. That's why whenever we come to consider this, we understand this to be the very central moment in Old Testament Scripture when the people are called out and they're truly set apart. They're primed and they're ready to then be the recipients of all that God promises in this covenant, but also that which He had promised in the Abrahamic covenant. This was God's establishing a people. Who would be the recipients of those specific national promises given to Abraham? And that's why, when we come to the land covenant in days ahead, all that we have come to consider is, and will come to consider, is the solidifying of what was necessary for those national promises of the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled. That's why whenever we come even to this time of year and we remember the advent of our Lord, the forefront of our minds is that statement, He came on to His own, but His own received Him not. He came to this peculiar treasure. He came to this set-apart people, and to them He offered the kingdom of heaven, but having rejected the kingdom of heaven in the days of Christ, the Israelite Jew will await its future and final fulfillment when their hearts are once more turned back in obedience to God. Once more, they'll be the recipients then of his peculiar blessings. Once more, he will rule and reign over them, but bless God also among them. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. The sign of the covenant then, number three... The sign was simply the Sabbath. Right at the outset, we note that this sign of the covenant, the Sabbath observance was only for this covenant. There are some who believe it to be true that this sign of the covenant and indeed the observance of the Sabbath must be legalistically applied to this very day. But if this was a sign of the covenant, and if, as we have noted, not only in our studies tonight, but as we have also referred to many times in our Sunday morning studies from the book of Romans, that the Mosaic covenant is no longer in operation, because remember Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness, to everyone that believes, according to Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. Then the law was only a temporary administration for as Paul writes in Galatians 3, What then is the law? It was added because of the transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Therefore, it cannot be true that the law of the Sabbath remains in force to this day. Now, the law of the Sabbath was an interesting one. In Exodus chapter 6, we saw the seed form of this sign. Whenever God prevented the gathering of manna on the Sabbath, no work to be done. No traveling was also to be undertaken on the Sabbath according to Exodus 16 and verse 29. And as we come to chapter 20 in the verse 10, it says the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thine manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. So we see here very clearly no work to be done. Numbers 15 in the verse 32, the Lord even says that no gathering of wood was to be done. Then in other Old Testament Scriptures, we see that the burden-bearing was prohibited, no trading was allowed, no marketing was permitted. So quite clearly, we see the emphasis of rest. The Sabbath day was given for rest. You'll not see a command for corporate worship on the Sabbath. What is referred to as worship on the Sabbath is referred to as a holy convocation. But Jewish scholars will tell us that that was intended to be a day of spiritual refreshing only for the priesthood. And so the Sabbath was to be a day of rest for the Hebrew. It was to be a day whenever they knew what it was to pause, to reflect, to rebuild their energy and their strength for the days of work ahead. For the priest, it was those days of refreshing which would allow them then to continue the daily ministration in the tabernacle or in days to come the temple. Now, in that sense, we see how these Old Testament truths did influence New Testament thinking and indeed New Testament practice. To this day, we seek to observe a day when we rest from the labors and from the pleasures of life. We spend a day engaged in holy activity, all with the intention that we ourselves will be spiritually refreshed. And so, this Old Testament thinking has, of course, influenced what is New Testament practice. And it isn't a bad thing. It's actually a very good thing that we do come aside from regular activity that we do engage ourselves in holy activity, that we are spiritually refreshed and physically refreshed for the day and for the week ahead. Now, one other thing to note about the Sabbath is that for breaking the Sabbath, an individual could be put to death. That's how serious this command was. That's how important the Sabbath was considered. But at all times, we uphold the truth that the Sabbath, the emphasis of the Sabbath, the emphasis of the sign of the covenant was for rest. And the God who provided the example of rest in his creation work now mandates rest for his chosen people in this legal framework. Coming to it as we do in this New Testament generation. I quite confidently say that rest remains a desire of God for all His people. And it remains a crucial need for all His people to this day. Many of the troubles and the trials that could be avoided are indeed minimized by rest. But yet today, many believers struggle to rest. Many believers struggle to take the time necessary for body and for mind in order to allow our whole being to recover, to acquire the needed strength for days and battles ahead. Physical rest is so often easily shunned, but mental rest is almost nigh impossible in this generation. Much of this is to do with electronic devices. As these devices have increased in availability and in mobility and in consumability, then there's been an upward trajectory in the mental activity of man to the point where it's been heightened to almost intolerable levels. From a young age, we are now bombarded by communication, information, social media posts, shopping, travel, news. And all these things and many more only serve to create a reality where so many find it impossible to switch off. To allow their mind to cease from the frantic activity of keeping up and to begin that necessary activity of quietly meditating on the Word of God. Saturating their mind with that which is true, honest, lovely, and of good report. And so today we see anxiety, sleep deprivation, heightened blood pressure, depression, tension in the home, a failure to apply the mind to learning or to work appropriately, moodiness, self-isolation, binge eating, impulse buying, discontentment, laziness, low self-esteem, suicidal thoughts, spiritual disconnectivity, paranoia, social awkwardness, all of these things and many more. They all find their place of prevalence in society today because no one seems able to rest. Friend, God desires for us all to rest, to know real and proper rest, and if you're someone who struggles with your mind, if you're someone who struggles with your sleep at night, who struggles to find happiness and contentment here in this life, if you're someone who is constantly plagued by thoughts of inadequacy, by thoughts of constantly pursuing things or people or places, and hear the words of the Savior when He says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Respond to his invitation tonight. Come ye yourself apart into a desert place, and rest a while. Believer, if you're troubled and perplexed by all that's going on, if you are one who is surrounded on every side, will hear the glad tidings of rest that are promised in His Word and remember the future rest that is guaranteed. That's given to us in the book of Hebrews in the chapter 4. The book of Hebrews in the chapter 4, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us entering into His rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter in to rest. There's rest to be known here in life. God has designed the Christian life so that you and I can find rest in this troubled world. continue on, and you see in verse 9 and verse 11, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. There's a future rest. And so, there's a rest to be known here in our life of faith, but there is, of course, that promise ahead of eternal rest. And so, here tonight, dear believer, avail of that promised rest. Come on to the Savior. Come and rest at His feet. Avail of that which is necessary for both body and mind. And hold on to the promise that despite all the heartache and sorrow and pain here below, there is the promise of eternal rest. And that will one day be our reality. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. Then we come lastly to consider the solace from the covenant. And for that, we turn to Deuteronomy in the chapter 5. Deuteronomy in the chapter 5, we read in the verses, or the opening four verses of the chapter, Moses called Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them, and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. Now come to chapter 6. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land, whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes, his commandments, which I command thee, thy and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, that thou mayest increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk with them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. Now here we see in these verses testimony that God's ways are not our ways. But His ways are always for His glory and for our good. These ways have followed promised long life, chapter 6 and verse 2, that thy days may be prolonged. They promise prosperity in life, that it may be well with thee, that thou mayest increase mightily, verse 3, as the Lord of thy fathers hath promised thee. So, God states here the very clear commandments, the very clear directions, His stated desires for the nation, which if followed and implemented, would bring promised blessing. These ways would be the way of life according to uh, verse 6 and following. They were to be taught to the children in verse 7. They were to be never forgotten, but always remembered in verses 8 and 9. And these words then would guarantee the desired outcome. Verse 10, it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land. Friend, this reminds me that God always has ways. And yes, we are right in the midst of a generation where things seem out of control. And yes, even as the days pass, we have more and more questions which arise from the seeming endless march of wickedness. And yes, even as we look outside the walls, the enemies of the church, the enemies of the Christian are in ascendancy. They're marching right up to the very walls of the city. They're mocking like in the days of Sennacherib. And they're saying, think not that your God will save you. They're mocking and they're scorning the believer. A child of God who simply believes the unfeeling, unchanging truth of God's Word. Perhaps tonight, with all that's going on, you're tempted to join their chorus and say, where is our God? But believer, these words of Scripture and this covenant reminds me that God always has a plan. A plan which will most certainly result in the desired outcome. A plan, although difficult and cumbersome for us to follow day by day, is always for our good. So tonight, I tell you, tonight, we live in a generation when this is not the time to give up on God. And this is not the time uh, to give up on His Word. But now is the time to depend on God. Now is the time to redouble our efforts to apply and to teach unto others the unchanging truth of His Word. And so as we live in the midst of this generation, we must be those who never forget but always remember the promises He has made. To always ensure that we teach the fullness of His Word to the upcoming generation and to live with a lively hope ready always to give an answer for that hope, that hope of eternal life that lieth within us. That eternal life, remember, is our present possession. And so tonight, will you be a believer who looks up, who depends on God, and who continually remembers the faithfulness of His Word? We can do all of this tonight. We can do all-